So welcome to the CSWR. My name is Charles Stang. It's my privilege to serve as the director here. Um, this event will go until 7 p.m. And I mention that because there's an event immediately on the heels that I want to call your attention to, um, a community vigil across the street in the Braun Room of Andover Hall. Uh, this, I'm going to read a message sent by uh, Dean Hempton and Carrie Maloney. Um, in response to the unspeakable violence, devastation, and grief of these past weeks, and especially in mourning for the deaths of the 11 people slaughtered at the Tree of Life Synagogue on the Sabbath this weekend, and the assassination of Maurice Stollard and Vicki Jones in Kentucky last week, all the latest victims in the growing ecology of hate in this country. In response to all of these horrific events, we will be gathering for a community vigil tonight from 7 to 8 p.m. in the Braun Room to share prayers and thoughts and to stand, stand alongside one another, especially beside those who are targeted in this contemporary climate in our grief and in solidarity. So needless to say, anyone who feels moved to join this vigil is welcome across the street at 7 p.m. immediately following our event this evening. So I'm sorry to start us off on that note, but that is where we find ourselves in today's America. Uh, on happier news, we are very happy to have um, to host Ahmed Raghab, our colleague, to celebrate his latest book, um, Piety and Patienthood in Medieval Islam. This series uh, was established by my predecessor, Frank Clooney, as an opportunity for the HDS community to gather not only to celebrate faculty publications, but more importantly to learn from them by engaging with them both appreciatively and critically. And to that end, we're grateful to our two faculty respondents whose comments will kick off what I hope to be a very spirited conversation. Um, before we begin, may I please remind you to silence your cell phones. And before I introduce our two respondents, uh, let me briefly introduce our author. And I should say that I favor brief introductions uh, so that our time together is spent learning from our guests rather than learning about them. Ahmed Raghab is the Richard T. Watson Associate Professor of Science and Religion here at HDS. He received his PhD in History and Philosophy of Science from L'Ecole Pratique des Hautes Etudes in Paris and his MD from Cairo University. He studies the history of science and medicine, science and religion, and the development of the cultures of science and cultures of religion in the Middle East and the wider Islamic world. His research on the history of science, medicine, and culture in the Islamic world includes the history of the medieval Islamic hospital, his first book, which we had a similar event just a few years ago. And uh, it also includes work on the epistemic authority of medieval Muslim women with a focus on women reporters of prophetic traditions. He's also worked on sex and gender differentiation in medical thought in the region, on the development of anatomy and dissection, and their relation to religious practices in the Ottoman context. He investigates medical thinking and physician-patient encounters in the medieval and early modern context. Our first respondent is Professor Nancy Kalik. She is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Brown University and specializes in late antiquity and Islam. She received her PhD in history from Princeton University in 2006. Her first book is entitled Damascus After the Muslim Conquest, Text and Image in Early Islam. And she's currently working on a second book on hagiography, biography, and material culture related to the companions of Muhammad in the context of claims of authority, I'm sorry, in context of claims of orthodoxy and authority in medieval Islam. She's also conducted archeological fieldwork in Syria, Turkey, and most recently in Jordan. Our second correspondent is our very own Mark Jordan, Richard Reinhold Niebuhr, professor of divinity at Harvard Divinity School. He is a scholar of Christian theology, European philosophy, and gender studies. He currently teaches courses on the Western traditions of Christian theology, the relations of religion to art and literature, and the prospects for sexual ethics. For the past two decades, he's written extensively on the field of sexual ethics, 
producing books that are widely regarded as important as opening important new conversations, especially in regard to homosexuality and religious marriage. But he has also continued to explore topics at the boundaries of philosophy and Christian theology across its history. His recent books are Convulsing Bodies, Religion and Resistance in Foucault, and Teaching Bodies, Moral Formation in the Summa of Thomas Aquinas, both of which we've had events in this very room for in past years. <laughs> oh, please, Mark. Okay, so this is how the evening will unfold. Those of you who've been to these know uh, how it works. So we're going to invite Ahmed to the podium first to say a few words about the book. And, and we ask authors to speak uh, about how they came to write the book, to give a kind of an introduction to the book that's a little unusual, not the usual summary of the book's contents. And then we will ask Nancy and Mark to respond in turn. And then we will give Ahmed uh, a chance to respond briefly and kind. Um, and then finally, what we'll do is open it up to you all for questions and comments. And what we usually do is put three chairs here um, so that um, Ahmed, Nancy, and Mark can have a conversation amongst themselves and with us. So without further ado, uh, please join me in welcoming our colleague, Ahmed Raghab. Thank you so much, Charlie, and many thanks to um, everybody at the center for all their work putting this event together, and thank you all for coming. Um, <clears throat> it is really a pleasure to be here, and um, my sincere thanks and apologies to the commentators for having to read through the book. I really appreciate it. Um, so that makes three of us, probably. Um, now, to start, um, I will just try, as Charlie mentioned, to uh, say a few things about how I came to write this project and how this project developed over time. Um, and the beginning few years ago, well, several years ago, was in thinking about prophetic medicine. Uh, prophetic medicine is a literature that is um, uh, composed by uh, religious scholars in the medieval Islamic period that often uh, addressed medical questions through a series of uh, prophetic traditions and narratives about the prophet and the companions and his companions. And uh, in many cases, these narratives around uh, prophetic medicine or this literature of prophetic medicine has become an important locus for scholarship, for modern scholars thinking about medicine and uh, Islam and thinking about science and religion. Primarily, these texts provide the clear example of uh, religious scholars engaging with medical theory and medical practice and thinking concretely about how do they make sense of these medical cosmologies. In a lot of this literature, the focus has been primarily on the particular contradictions, if you will, between medical knowledge and religious knowledge and questions of law and legality of specific medical practices, including therapeutics, diagnostics, and sort of uh, the different uh, aspects of medical theory and practice in the medieval world. And the way that this literature has arrived um, sort of to its zenith, if you will, in the 13th and 14th century was through the works of scholars like uh, Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyyah or al-Dahabi, who wrote um, uh, texts that are arranged and organized in the same way that medical textbooks are organized but are full of or uh, include um, question, uh, prophetic traditions and anecdotes as opposed to medical knowledge. Now, in my work, the, my interest in the deeper history of prophetic medicine was primarily about trying to find out why and where do these traditions and anecdotes come from. What is basically the archive, if you will, that constitutes the mode of thinking about the connection between the prophetic legacy on one hand and medical knowledge on the other. But in reading much of the modern scholarship on the topic, what happens, what I found, is that in this study of prophetic medicine, the prophet gets lost in the prophetic. Prophetic becomes a stand-in for religious, capital R. Prophetic traditions and anecdotes become simply vessels to deliver arguments about religious understandings of something, and religious, in quotes, end with a big R, or particular legal propositions on how one should do this or do that, or how one should understand their own bodies or deal with particular questions. However, in this particular book, what I try to do is primarily to recover, if you will, the profit in this prophetic medical literature. 
The prophet here, I argue, is a locus for pious self-formation, becomes an ideal example for the pious uh, agent, becomes also a place or a, a narrative space, if you will, for providing instructions and advice on how one needs to behave in their lives and how one needs to understand uh, their own existence as pious uh, people living in a particular society. But this legacy of the prophet, which comes to develop slowly, and as I explain in the first chapter in the book, from the 9th century into the 11th century, with added emphasis on the details of the prophet's life, including what he liked to drink, what he liked to eat, the diseases that he suffered from, the medications that he had, the people that he encountered, but also how he dyed his hair, how often he slept, how he slept, and how often and with whom he had sex. All of these details which come to constitute the identity of the prophet as a boidial or as an example to be followed is not constructed in the way of making a meta-narrative. There is no singular or particularly canonical version of what the prophet is like. Instead, the narratives around the prophet and the narratives that constitute this prophet-inspired form of piety are precisely made out of little narratives to borrow Jean-Francois Lyotard's concept. The idea of little narratives are narratives that are self-contained, small anecdotes that have a beginning and an end, and that can be moved from one spot to another with ease. The narrative here does not provide the pious agent with a blueprint of how one should behave at every single moment in their lives, but rather provides them with instructions to precisely create a piecemeal pious self. This piecemeal pious self, if you will, is based and created and invested in contradictions, in tensions, in reversals, and in interruptions. And in thinking about illness in particular, these reversals and interruptions and contradictions become extremely important. Here, we're looking at this literature engaging with an embodied experience that on one hand attempts to provide a pietistic, if you will, or a pious subtext to how one should deal with one's own body, but in the same process redefines what it means to be sick and reinforms these pious readers of how they need to feel their bodies, understand their thoughts, and understand the different changes that are happening to their existence, whether embodied or spiritual, in this particular context. Now, in this, in this specific structure, the experience of illness is definitely rooted in medical knowledge in the sense that with a growing Galenic and growing dominance of Galenic discourse, the experience of illness, the causality of diseases, the how illnesses occur, what symptoms are, are invested in this learned medical discourse that is largely Galenic. But in thinking about prophetic medicine, not as simply a side of encounter between medical and religious text, but rather as a font of piety practiced within medicine, we're able now to uncover how this prophetic material informs the readers not to encounter medical knowledge, but to inhabit medical knowledge. Medical knowledge becomes a resource for these readers to understand how their bodies function, but also to navigate their bodies within a larger structure of what it means to be a pious person. In the same way, these deep sensoria that are connected to particular pious practices are also connected to medical knowledge. They are connected to how the body is perceived to be formed of particular humors, and they are in many cases connected to how the spirit is perceived from a Galenic perspective to be, for instance, composed of three different parts that are almost always in conflict. And as such, moving away from questions of how we understand conflicts or attempts at reconciliation, we're looking again at a pious practice that tries to understand and tries to think about what it means to inhabit a sick body or a healthy body in moments of illness. In studying these particular uh, pious, this type of pious literature, which includes collections of prophetic traditions from which the uh, major literature on prophetic medicine of the 13th and 14th century comes from. In studying uh, these particular things, um, I am encountering in many cases the very individual nature of this pious practice. Hence, my attempt at recovering the term pietist and pietistic. 
In a lot of these cases, the embodied experience of illness is perceived to be largely individual. The individual needs to experience their body in a particular way. They need to deploy these pietistic resources to understand and make sense of their individual existence. Now, this extends beyond illness to provide us with a narrative of piety that places the divine in the point between the pious agent on one hand and the recipient of piety on the other. So think, for instance, of somebody who's visiting a patient, an important act of piety that a lot of this literature talks about. In narratives around patient visiting, it becomes not a visit to an actual patient or an ill person. It becomes a visit to God. Prophetic traditions explain that God will ask people, I feel sick and you have not come to visit me. And when they ask back, how God, Lord, how could you have fallen sick? He says, so and so was sick. Had you visited this person, you would have found me there. In a way, the relationship, the pious exchange that exists between two persons is now being uh, modified to create or place the divine between these two people. And in placing the divine here, God effaces the recipient of this piety, but at the same time accentuates the individual nature of these pietistic constructions. In a way, this piecemeal construction of an archive of piety, if you will, becomes largely a process of self-formation, of the formation of a particular individual self that understands itself and understands its role in society in relation to the divine. So in the remaining couple of minutes, I think I have a couple of minutes, um, I will mention one, I will mention very briefly that the different chapters of the book. So the book starts, as I mentioned, with trying to recover the image of the prophet. So in the first chapter, I'm looking at this growing interest in the um, life of the prophet and in the details of his uh, life and how, in a way, the prophet emerges from a political and legal figure or source of legal knowledge into this kind of embodied person that needs that people can learn more and more about. And in there, uh, I talk also about the emergence of narratives around the different episodes of illness that affected the prophet, which were quite frequent, and how some of these major episodes constitute the knowledge or sort of the space of illness in the life of the prophet as a boidiyah. And in the next chapter, I look at how these narratives around the prophet's illness were now captured by other scholars to be separated into independent volumes, and how these independent volumes rearranged the archive of prophetic materials to match, in many ways, the kind of uh, sort of the medical knowledge and the cosmology of medicine at the time. Moving from these historiographic chapters, I talk about illness in particular and think about the under what illness meant and what kind of piety needed to be performed in moments of illness. And then I look at its spiritual medicine and thinking about spiritual diseases, what they meant in the place of um, medical or medicalized discourses in thinking about different vices and spiritual diseases. And finally, I talk about pious physicians and what kind of piety is implied in the practice of medicine and what sorts of narratives can be uh, or sort of were, how physicians were themselves to understand their own pious practice. Now, sort of in lieu of a conclusion, in the coda, I look at three main concepts that I consider to animate this study in the book. The first one is uh, piety, and uh, then patienthood, and finally, which I briefly talked about today, and finally, I think about medieval Islam. And this is what I would like to end with in thinking about medieval Islam in these times that we're living in, where Islam is understood to be medieval even though it is modern. By thinking about Islam as medieval, as a kind of ahistorical fossil, if you will, that survived from a pre-modern world into the contemporary, current Islamophobic discourse is imbued with this historicity, or presumed historicity, that tends to locate Islam again on the margin as a pre-modern fossil that survives into the contemporary. I argue that there is a lot of work that historians of medieval Islam can do to precisely undo this type of fossilization of Islam. And part of it is on one hand, taking seriously the medieval in medieval Islam and understanding medieval Islam as part of a growing structure of a lived experience and practices of people. And at the same time, 
openly understand the different and question the different influences that survive from, from medieval Islam into the modern. Thank you. Uh, good evening. Thank you, um, Charlie, for asking me to come and participate in this event. Thank you, Ahmed. I am uh, both trying to be mindful of my posture and not bending over the podium and reading from handwritten notes. So if I look a little confused at times, just ignore it. Um, my own specialties are not in the history of science and certainly not in medicine. So I'm going to limit my comments tonight to um, a couple of areas in spite of the numerous insights in this rather beautiful and elegantly written book. I don't know how much of a background uh, people in this room have into Islamic studies or the history of medicine or the history of science. I'm not going to assume a lot of prior knowledge and I'm not gonna get into sort of nitty gritty names, but you should read this book even if you don't have an interest in the history of medicine or the history of science yet because of the profound insights that it offers into uh, genre and literature and into piety and subjectivity. Um, topics which are often not discussed in elegant prose by Islamicists, but in this book they are. It really is a very rich and, and beautifully written book. Um, and I'm very pleased actually that I got, that I was forced to have to read it um, now as opposed to you know sometime in the future like all those other books on my bookshelf. So I'm gonna confine my comments to two big things, hadith and genre, and then piety and subjectivity. Um, and connect that to the coda that Ahmed mentioned towards the end of his own comments, which I was fortunate enough to have read fairly early on in my reading of the book. I sort of read the book not in order, based on how much time I had on a given day for chunks at a time. And I had sort of 20 minutes left at one point, and the coda's eight pages long. I said, let me just read the coda and see what happens. And, I, and I'm so happy that I read it fairly early on, because it gave me a bit of insight into the the sort of the humanization of medieval Muslims that was at the core of the book um, that was there, and I would have seen it anyway, but I, I realized the import that it had for Ahmed in embarking on this project, having read the coda um, early on. So hadith, subgenres of literature, these little narratives, and the analysis of the structure of hadith themselves um, as a massive number of short reports that, as Ahmed mentioned, resist a single unitary meta-narrative. This is like the gospel on steroids. Many, many thousands of short reports of things that Muhammad said or did. Now, as a historian, I have read chronicles, I have read archaeological reports, I have read all kinds of sources, but I hate reading hadith. <laughs> I find the language archaic and alienating. I find that I, I fear a new wall will be built up sort of a, an imaginary wall for every new prohibition that every hadith describes. The hadith, to, to an unlearned person like myself, having not steeped myself in their study for most of my life, are very difficult to wade through, precisely because you can't find a meta-narrative, because they are often, you know, they're the handmaiden to the study of Islamic law. That's the kind of the usual um, description of hadith. The hadith are second in the Quran, to the Quran in the derivation of Islamic law. I have studied law. Um, and so lately in my own work, I have started to read non-canonical hadith or non-prophetic hadith. So these are reports not of the things that Muhammad said or did, but what his companions said or did, or what the later generation said or did. And these abound not in the canonical hadith collections, which were sifted out for authenticity, but in a number of different genres, um, like the religious merits of the companions, like the proofs of prophecy, which Ahmed discusses, uh, like these medicinal, um, or rather medical texts on prophetic medicine in the later era, which begin to incorporate a lot of non-canonical, non-prophetic, um, or weakly attributed to the prophet hadith, um, in order to sort of flesh out um, or offer possibilities for ways of thinking about how to engage with the memory of Muhammad or how to emulate him or how to simply exist in a world where one is constantly thinking about him beyond the, the canonical hadith. And I'll talk a little bit more about canon and not canon um, a little bit later. And those reports are, are actually rather wonderful to swim in because it is in the, in the non-canonical or in the weaker reports that one finds possibilities for things like ambiguity or ambivalence 
or simply the sort of depth of humanity that Ahmed teases out when talking about the vulnerability of illness and the relationship one has with oneself when one is either undergoing an illness or witnessing someone who is uh, afflicted with illness. Few people take the time to explain in their scholarship the particular conceptualization of the prophet um, that people had uh, in the first few centuries of Islam. And few people do it in as careful and theoretically sophisticated a manner as Ahmed does in this book. The connections between what he calls a pietistic disposition and the corpus of both canonical and non-canonical hadith that he designates as a poetics interrogates how the image of the prophet developed. And then he connects this to the history of epistemic and both intellectual and professional formation uh, visible through a specific textual tradition. So he traces this chronologically, sort of diachronically rather, through time to demonstrate an evolution in the genre from medical prophetics to a prophetic med medicine, which is a different kind of more professionalized uh, kind of literature. And while rather reasonably, because we cannot do everything in one book, Ahmed decided to focus on the textual tradition and not the history of the institutions, the madrasas, the hospitals, um, that housed the professionalization of either physicians or religious scholars or scholars of hadith, we inevitably come away from this book with a deeper understanding of what Ahmed calls cultural maturation uh, from the course of, say, the 8th to the 13th century. Furthermore, like a good physician, Ahmed attends to the whole person. That is, he points out something that most of us know but rarely say out loud and even more rarely see in scholarship. That a number of the famous scholars of hadith also engaged with prophetic tradition from the vantage point of literature or adab. And that hadith and adab existed on a continuum and were connected. That is, someone like Ibn Abi Shayba who has been squeezed of life, in my view, in most books that discuss his work as a scholar of hadith, is returned as a human being in all of his dimensions in this book. The fetishization of hadith studies, and here you might get a little glimpse of my own little, uh, be in my own bonnet. The fetishization um, of hadith studies as the domain of the crunching of chains of transmission to test for accuracy, or as the realm of austere distinctions of what is permitted and what is pro prohibited in Islamic law, or hadith as the handmaiden to law, is really no longer a viable option after reading Ahmed's book. He emplaces the history of prophetic medicine into a wider intellectual framework in which hadith's energy, its vitality, its humanity, known to medieval people but lost on modern people, possible again. The second area or thing that I found most exciting about the project was the sensitive way in which Ahmed deals with the idea that medieval people cultivated themselves as pious beings. With a deft application of theory, and I'm going to leave discussions of Foucault to our colleagues, um, but a deft application of theory on the self and on self-care and the making of a religious self. Um, and I realized that there's scholarship that Ahmed is citing here, um, but really he has laid bare for us the interiority of religious practice. And I found the language and the clarity with which Ahmed applied concepts of the body as a work in progress and a repository of materials for pious self-making really astonishing. One thing that I am exploring in my own research is the history of emotions and, and what uh, scholars have called emotional communities in the Middle Ages. And I found much discussed here that resonated with those um, with that theory and with that work, specifically the idea of ambivalence, coupled with the emotional and affective reactions to illness, vulnerability, such as fear, uh, patience, and understanding of mortality and death. Regeb's work shows us how medieval patients, that is to say, everyone, potentially, fashioned a pious disposition that constantly navigated a set of temporally varied relationships. That is, they had, there were relationships with the prophet and how people tried to emulate him in times of illness or in maintaining health. There were relationships with their own interior selves, depending on their own status as healthy or ill. 
There were the relationships with those around them when it came to thinking about whether they should bear their illness with patients or if they should complain. And they were actually also anticipating relationships with their future selves, either as having passed on and receiving reward for having had the penance uh, from illness in their afterlives, or hoping for a cure and thinking about their future healthy selves. And the attention to temporality, again, this is just one of maybe a hundred things that, that Ahmed does in this book that is incredibly powerful and really, really important. Um, and he just weaves it in kind of seamlessly in his discussion of this corpus of materials, which is why I say even if you're not studying history of science, the book has so much to offer. Uh, I don't think I've read a book in my own field that does all of this with the level of care uh, and precision um, that Ahmed does, and I will consider it a model for how I proceed with my own work. I want to end with one question and one last thing that I found particularly interesting, and I said I would return to the idea of the non-prophetic and the prophetic hadith. I love the formulation towards the end of the book that as this genre of prophetic medicine grew, what scholars basically did is that they moved beyond the canonical hadith collections and they started incorporating some of these less authenticated traditions, which had always been preserved, but were kind of on the margins of hadith discipline. And they did so in order to sort of fill in chapters in the new um, prophetic medicine literature. I know I'm not calling, I'm not saying it right, but you guys know what I mean. The later iteration of the, of the genre, because it was no longer that the body of hadith available was determining what these books were about. It was that this was a genre that had developed on its own, had incorporated um, other kinds of thought, other epistemologies, and so it needed more hadith material. And so now instead of the corpus determining the chapters, as Ahmed says in the book, it's the chapters that are determining what we need of a corpus. And that kind of understanding of how genres uh, expand and what is required for their continued evolution and the response and sensitivity of, of medieval Muslim scholars in making decisions about what kinds of hadith literature they would allow into their own study, um, even though they don't have legal value, even though they acknowledge that they are um, not necessarily the strongest hadith, sort of, to me, demonstrates a level of um, self-awareness and a kind of uh, fluidity in, in the minds of medieval Muslim scholars. I find the non-canonical hadith literature very exciting because it helps me decenter law as the central paradigm for the history of Islamic intellectual life. So one thing I'd like to ask Ahmed, or maybe we can talk about it in the discussion, is what does the acceptance of these weak hadith say about the relative irrelevance of legal standards? Not necessarily the irrelevance of law, because even these people talk about the legality of medicine and of taking cures and all of that, but rather the sort of the, the marginalization of legal standards when it comes to the constitution of the self. Um, it seems to me that when Muslims looked for care, they went for these non-canonical hadith. When they looked for edification in the religious merits literature, they went for the non-canonical hadith. When they looked for proof of miracles or of the Prophet's career, they, in the Dala'il literature, it's non-canonical hadith. When they looked for a way of situating themselves in history and even in prehistory with the literature of the firsts, like the first prophet to cut his hair or the first person to use language, it's the non-canonical hadith. So for all of these affective dimensions of life and in these moments of vulnerability or crisis or coming to terms with mortality, it was the non-legal hadith. So I wonder what that says about um, the place of law. And then I also wonder, just to play devil's advocate, perhaps I'm being too harsh on law, and maybe there are affective dimensions to, le to legal hadith too that we in the modern world, in our fetishization of isnad crunching, have lost. And perhaps we've even done an, a disservice to the study of Islamic law by, by making it sort of inhumane. Uh, so. I just want to say again, thank you for your work. Uh, thank you all for your forbearance. Um, and I look forward to the discussion.
You've, you've heard the learned response, and now we get the unlearned response. It's actually a custom here at the center that um, one of the respondents knows what they're talking about and one doesn't. Uh, there'll be a vote afterwards to see if you can tell. Um, once upon a time, Michel Foucault was invited to join a panel discussion on the novel. Hesitating to begin, or pretending hesitation, Foucault said that he feared to trample on literary topics with mes gros sabots de philosophe, my big philosopher's work clogs. The phrase seems perfectly apt for what's facing me. I risk wandering through Ahmed's book with my Foucauldian sabot, or what might be worse, with the sabot of a sometime student of medieval Latin medicine. I run the risk even if I praise, since I may praise what is commonplace and skip over the original or the difficult. But here I am with my limited selection of footwear, and the only justification I can think of is that Ahmed invokes Foucault explicitly as a guiding spirit. So let me pace off two rather simple Foucauldian questions in hopes that Ahmed may use them to speak more fully about his purposes and not my footwear. First question, what exactly is being described or analyzed in this book? Second question, how does the book leave room for what cannot be described or analyzed? Both of these are versions of very familiar questions in the history of medicine and I'll take them in order. I quote, how does a person become sick? How does one make sense of the physical, emotional, and psychological experience of sickness? Those are the book's own questions announced in the opening lines. They are very interesting, but also risky. They tempt us to imagine that we know more than we can about the past or indeed the present. I think that the safest answer to the question would be, the book is analyzing some old languages about being sick, languages more concerned with exhortation or prescription than pure description, if there can ever be such a thing. I stress old languages to foreground the challenge of rendering them into one variety or another of our English. More, these old languages are themselves artifacts of earlier translation, typically ancient Greek to Arabic, sometimes by way of Syriac. One of Foucault's most frequent cautions to the historian of medicine is that they translate, that the translation of key terms, of the terms most charged with power, cannot be easy. The most a translator can do is to make a simulacrum of the original in her language, frequently by transliterating the core terms or else designating certain other terms as their stand-ins. Here's a single example chosen from more than 200 um, pages at random, though I confess to spending two hours in the lexicon of Greek-Arabic medical terminology. <laughs> um, Galen sometimes um, uses a word that we would usually translate as by nature or according to nature to describe what contemporary English speakers would probably call instinctive. But when Ahmed translates gariza as instinct in a passage that begins, the intellect is an instinct which is similar to a light that is thrown into the heart I'm pretty sure that instinct cannot mean what it does in Darwin. But what does it mean? And is it worth flagging the inadequacy of translation or citing the underlying Greek term or terms to remind the reader of the complexity of the relations among technical terminologies? Similar problems afflict the use of the word spiritual and many others. I also notice here the complexity of fitting technical terminologies into what we ordinarily distinguish as literal and metaphoric. Consider efforts to distinguish metaphoric 
from non-metaphoric uses of medical language in relation to ethics. Plato's Republic, for example, which is a common text, indeed at this point much more salient for the Islamic philosophic tradition than it is in the West, where it's largely unknown. Plato's Republic is built around an analogy between the soul's ethical condition and the political health of the city. Medical metaphors or medical terminology um, is used on both sides of the analogy for the soul and for the city. And to my ears, neither side of that platonic analogy is metaphorical in relation to the other. They are both metaphorical and non-metaphorical. Again, when ancient Stoics described the philosophic school as a hospital or the passions of the soul as diseases, they are not being metaphorical. In all of this, I paraphrase Foucault, especially from Birth of the Clinic, as Ahmed knows. He begins that book by contrasting two neurological descriptions of the human body separated by less than 100 years. The first from France in the middle of the 18th century describes the supposed results of a brutal regime of baths ordered for nervous desiccation. The nerves are dry, you wet them by a lot of baths. The second description from the first quarter of the 19th century depicts a lesion in an anatomized brain. How do the two medical texts differ, Foucault asks. Not, he answers, by quantity of added imagination. However much we have been taught to believe that the earlier text is driven by absurd fantasies, while the later text is a sober report of unimpeded observation. I wonder whether Ahmed doesn't sometimes slip into an assumption of the superior literalness of our languages in small matters, but especially large. Back on the first page, we learned that the suffering body is a social, gendered, sexualized, and racialized entity that becomes a site of production of social and cultural knowledge. Certainly, these contemporary words can be justified as a kind of lure or hook to catch the contemporary reader, that notoriously distracted being. But I wonder whether they don't impose the complacency of our cliches onto the old texts. And when I read about the sensorium of sickness, I can't help but ask, only one sensorium? I mean, are we to assume the singleness or stability of the sensorium across all medical discourses? Finally, genre, not, I think, as a compositional matrix. Uh, Ahmed handles that uh, beautifully. He's very clear about the rhetorical character of the text he analyzes, though I found myself, of course, greedy to learn more. I can never have enough about genre. I'm more concerned with genre as a kind of abbreviation or cipher for what we take to be the complex rhetorical motives or a, of a text for its desire to persuade. And I don't see as clearly, though this may be the fault of my reading, that he draws the rhetorical conclusions from the genres that he describes so beautifully. If you are reading prescriptive or hortatory texts about how to be piously sick, you are not getting data on the experience of sickness, which would vary widely and be subject at best to statistical summary. Prescriptive and hortatory texts tell you about ideals or fantasies or official stories about human lives, but they tell you even more about cultural worries. This is what Foucault meant by emphasizing the problematization of certain aspects of bodily control in Mediterranean antiquity. What makes male-male sexual relations a problem for fifth century Athenians? Why those relations and not other relations? Or what makes the surveillance of apparently random thoughts a problem in Cassianic monasticism? 
Ahmed is careful to distinguish what might be considered different genres in the textual streams running from the medical prophetics to prophetic medicine. Indeed, the first three chapters are divided, in effect, by the genre of the text. But I remain unclear whether the genre shifts respond to a single problematization of patienthood in relation to piety. Let me say that again. Ahmed is very clear that the genre mutations are being driven by different procedures of organization, codification, and that these have to do with the solidification of knowledge and so on. What I'm not so clear about is whether there is what Foucault would call an underlying ethical problematization in regard to patienthood in Islam. Again, I may simply be missing it. Um, but I do wonder, and here I, I confess the influence of um, my reading in medieval Latin texts, which are drawn from the same Galenic sources, of course, and frequently consist of abbreviations and bad translations of work in Arabic. But what I'm wondering is whether the underlying religious worry is to distinguish various ideologies of illness in relation to evildoing, or to establish an economy of rewards for enduring, or to divide appropriate from inappropriate reasons for seeking a cure, or to commend patience and other virtues. All these and more appear in Ahmed's analysis, but I'm left wondering whether they are stratified or put into a hierarchy of motives or problems. I should also confess I was thrown consistently by the adjectival form pietistic, which I could only hear as a kind of distancing maneuver. I'm not going to call it real, I'm not going to call it pious, but I'm going to call it pietistic. And I understand the desire to link it to the notions of individual um, pietism. Um, but it did, it, it did, I kept wanting you just to say pious rather than pietistic. Um, more than enough on the first question, let me turn very briefly to the second. How does this book leave room for what cannot be described or analyzed? in scholarly prose of no matter how much sparkling precision. I'm not thinking about the incommensurability of languages or the characteristics of genres so much as the limit on all human languages in registering the divine or spiritual. Now, I use that word now roughly in our contemporary sense, or one of our 300 contemporary senses. Perhaps because I um, have just these weeks been teaching about AIDS in US religious thinking, I kept wanting to find in this book other relations between sickness and God. Not just how religion disciplines bodies by imposing rules or examples, but how the fracturing of everyday consciousness in serious illness can produce new religious desire or sensibilities. The first wave of AIDS deaths in this country shattered the explanatory certainties of many progressive religious groups who were unprepared for so much untimely suffering, for urgent questions about the punishments or blessings of an afterlife, for irrational longing after an eternal love and a reunion of restored bodies. What I observed in those communities can be seen in many other places and times, and not just in cultures, but in remarkable individuals. Experiences of illness can crush, but they can also bring visions. Uh, that's one lesson of Tony Kushner's Angels in America, but I think as well of two very different women in medieval Europe, Julian of Norwich and Marjorie Kemp, or Therese of Lisieux for a third, or the traditions of lovesickness converted into mystical poetry which ranges across Muslim, Jewish, and Christian authors. Please understand, I am not arguing that Ahmed should have written another pious manual of his own, nor am I trying to turn scholarly history back into hagiography. But I do wonder whether critical historiography must not be especially critical about reducing or excluding unusual religious experiences. Mustn't a critical history ask whether the suffering body 
in addition to being a social, gendered, sexualized, and racialized entity, isn't also a creature capable of illumination and responsive to prayer. Asking this, I was reminded of the extraordinary preface that Foucault affixed to the first edition of History of Madness, as we call it in English, though he later, later uh, regretted it for being too lyrical, that is, too candid, I still find it an affirmation of his deepest convictions about what, it, what is called for when writing the history of medicine, which is inevitably a history of bodily suffering and desperate hopes and occasional flashes of light. In the book, Foucault is trying to get back before the modern European bifurcation of reason and madness to recover a rustic dawn language that once registered their confused inseparability. So Foucault strains to imagine that lost language, that language before the division of reason and madness. It's imperfect words without fixed syntax, slightly stammering. Failing that, as he must, he at least refuses to ratify the victory of the language of reason, the psychiatric monologue over an enforced silence of the mad. I have not wanted to make the history of this clinical language rather the archaeology of this silence. Historiography, especially the historiography of medicine, does tend to silence whatever doesn't fit within its account of sequels. But history writing also depends on what it silences. I would say especially in the history of medicine. I quote Foucault, the fullness of history is not possible except in the space at once empty and peopled of all the words without language that give understanding to the one who lends an ear to the deaf noise from beneath history, the stubborn murmur of language that speaks by itself. He was reading a lot of Blanchot at the time. Now, there are substantial differences between the archival evidence Foucault had at his disposal for a history of modern European madness and the archives Ahmed could consult for his work. Yes, Foucault's compositional solutions won't work for a history of prophetic medicine. Still, I want to suggest that Foucault's preoccupation with leaving silence, with acknowledging what stands outside all of the texts, might well serve as a guide for writing the history of medieval illness, whether in Islamic lands or in Christendom. The silence must allow not only for the excess of individual bodily experience over standard verbal prescriptions, but for the possibility of divine encounter, of spiritual contact in and through illness, whatever the handbooks say. Thank you.